1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. If you want to tell people the big news...
0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Independence Duh Edition. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2016. On today's show, Independence Day Resurgence is the much unawaited sequel to the old Roland Emmerich blockbuster. Is it every bit the bloated, cynical mess the critics say it is? I can't, Dana loved it, I think. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Does that make me unbloated and cynical?
0: <laughs> makes you Svelte and, and optimistic.
1: And
0: yeah, exactly. And then Angels in America, the magnificent theater epic by Tony Kirshner, widely hailed at the time as a total masterpiece, now turns 25. Slate has produced an oral history of the play. We discuss its birth, its life, its glorious afterlife with Slate's culture editor, Dan Kois. And finally, Judith Butler was once the most ridiculed academic in America. She was a stand-in for everyone's dislike of jargon and obscurity for obscurity's sake, et cetera, et cetera. Now New York Magazine has anointed her the genderqueer prophet for our times. Uh, the, I should say the additionally interesting thing about our discussion about Judith Butler will be Dan- the fact that Danny Stevens was her thesis advisee. Correct.
2: Yes, I was. And as a result, I was one of the many people who gave the author of this big Butler profile in New York magazine some background material. I sat down with the author, as did a few other people I know who studied with her. And we were never directly quoted in the piece, but we were sort of mm-hmm. talking about what it was like to be her student.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we take you out of the shadows of deep background. Um. <laughs> deep <throat laughs> emerges. Yeah. So, um, Julia, before we proceed, we must have some business, I would think.
3: Yes, we are doing a live show at the Mount Uh, Edith Wharton's Mance in Lenox, Massachusetts, on August 4th. I believe there are still tickets available for that at slate.com slash live. Please come join us. I was there when I was on vacation last week, not exactly at the Mount, but in Lenox and in that area. It's so freaking beautiful. If you've never been, you should go make a weekend of it. Come see us. It'll be really fun. Also, I should note for our Slate Plus members that uh, for this week's bonus segment, I have kicked Dana and Steve out and invited Dan Kois and Willa Paskin in to discuss uh, the Game of Thrones finale, how the show has changed in its most recent season, and whether it's any good and why it's so compelling. So stick around for that discussion if you're a PLUS member. If not, you can join Slate Plus at slate.com slash cultureplus. All right, Steve, what's next?
0: All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. Uh, When the movie Independence Day appeared in 1996, it represented possibly, I suppose, a turning point for the blockbuster, the super expensive seasonally released movie targeted at teenage boys had a pretty good run since the 1980s, but where could it go next? Could you possibly make movies louder, bigger, stupider and win an even bigger audience share? With Independence Day, the answers turned out to be yes, it was a silly sub-epic crammed with stars, very thin on plot, and some prefab iconographic destruction of major tourist destinations like the White House Empire State Building made an unbelievable haul at the box office. Now, 20 years later, comes Independence Day Resurgence, which honors its predecessor by making it look, in comparison, like Citizen Kane. It's a confusing mess from beginning to end. Let's just say it involves aliens invading in a ship the size of a ocean totally ridiculous being repelled by plucky earthlings no less ridiculous at one moment the entire contents of asia uh people included are dumped on europe i think that happens in this movie i'm not sure if that was the movie or the shrooms talking um it stars liam hemsworth micah monroe jeff goldblum bill pullman many of the people from the original movie notably not will smith to uh, decline to reappear why don't we listen to a clip
1: here we go all right <laughs> coming for you, baby. There she is. What is it, an alien laser? Nope. (laughs) That's the oaken laser. Careful, you'll agitate the crystals. (laughs) I built it back in 94. (laughs) Had to shelve it, though, after the
0: meltdown in sector three. Here, put it over here. What is that thing doing here? All right, good boy, go stand over there. Wait a second, What, (laughs) what meltdown? Are we sure this thing is safe to use?
1: Highly unlikely. Clear!
2: Careful, Steve. You'll agitate the crystals.
0: (laughs) Oh my god. Dana, there might be a meltdown in sector three of your brain. You didn't fucking pan this movie. The only thing resurgent about this is that it kind of repeats on you like a bad hot dog. It's so fucking bad. Why didn't you flay it alive? You were so agnostic.
2: Uh I was more than agnostic. I enjoyed it. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, let me give you some oh, background, okay? The, going in to see this movie, it was a very strange um, sort of moment. So this movie was not screened in advance for critics, usually not a sign that a movie is, you know, that worth reviewing. Uh, that it, that essentially only happens with either critic-proof movies like the Star Wars movie or something that's so bad that, you know, they're going to sort of try to get in a good weekend before the bad reviews come out because they know they're coming. So as a result, me and a bunch of other critics had to go pay to see it on the opening night and, and then run home and write a review. Fast. That also happened to be the night, I mean, whatever, the week after Orlando, the week after the sit-in in Congress. It was the day that the Brexit vote was happening. It was just a, the kind of day on which you felt that you could not give two fucks about the latest whatever summer blockbuster movie. And yet somehow this movie – in, its, in the very stupidity of its portrayal of apocalypse made me start thinking about America's fantasy of apocalypse and I ended up finding it really exciting to write on. I also, and this is a more personal thing you guys know already, I just have a weakness for big dumb disaster movies. I love <laughs> Twister. We've talked about my love for Twister. I love 2012, the uh, the Mayan apocalypse fantasy that the same director Roland Emmerich made in the year 2012. I still remember the, the press screening of 2012 and just crying with laughter through the whole thing. I mean, to me, his, Roland Emmerich in particular, his kind of conspiratorial imaginings. For example, he made that movie Anonymous that's like an anti-Stratfordian drama, right? Proposing that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare's plays. There's something so Bonkers and bananas and out there that I don't feel that he's just tiredly re- repeating the same. He's not Michael Bay, you know. He's a guy mm-hmm. with a with a with a vision, a completely fucked up, weird apocalyptic vision, but a, a vision of sorts. And in this, in my review or in some tagline about it, I think I call it this sweet, dumb, innocent movie. And in a way, yeah. I feel oh, like it's not it's not misogynistic. It's not racist. It's not full of the kind of glee and gore that I think, for example, I, Michael I Bay type movies take. It's, I agree with that. It's sort of an old school. It's not you sadistic. know, Let's let's fight the aliens. Like one of those 50s yeah. movies where a social anxiety is incarnated in the form of some giant yeah. insect invading the earth and a bunch of good earth people
0: of oh, all God, nations you...
2: unite together to fight it. <laughs>
0: you're, you're fucking convincing me. I hate you.
2: <laughs> I mean, all, <laughs> but, Dana, <laughs> all I'm, I'm saying just... <laughs> is that it cannot be trashed in the same – it can't be thrown into the same trash can as the Michael Bay Transformers movies or lots of other sort of let's make the biggest, clankiest, most violent yep. science okay. fiction epic we can.
0: I, okay, fair enough, and it's—I I agree with you that in general it's not a sadistic movie. It, its gestures towards inclusiveness seem to me relatively sincere. I don't like the you know cathartic use of the b-word, you know, during the final kill shot. You know, at the final kill shot, it, it strikes me as just disgusting and twenty years too late. Whatever we can well, get. Well, your
2: favorite that. movie, Alien, has that. Doesn't it have the same exact tagline? Before yeah, she... but
0: but that movie stars Sigourney Weaver. I mean, come on, that movie's. Feminist bona fides are are totally intact still, but um, Julia, you got to step in here. I'm, this is like I'm I'm telling my tag team wrestling partner to get in the ring. I've been completely exhausted.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, Dana's putting up a good fight. I mean, this movie is laughably bad, but it's bad in a retro and distinctive way, is what I would say, and and one that's sort of refreshing to watch. And it made me think a lot about this sort of action movie, the like written from scratch. Uh, the world's at stake, but but it's the world we live in, not the Marvel, you know, a, a comic book world, action movie that we used to have a lot of them, and we don't anymore. Like the, this movie has been replaced by the Marvel movie or the DC Comics movie for the most part. Um, there there aren't a ton of action franchises now that are divorced from the comic books, apart from I guess Fast and Furious, which I think is also has a different kind of stakes it's not an intergalactic set of stakes that you have there, and it was sort of refreshing to see the like 90sness of it uh, and the to have kind of Jeff Goldblum back incongruously in an action movie doing his like cr- cranky, gangly, incongruous thing charmingly as always. The array of characters in it are like thin to the point of translucency. you don't really care about any of them with the exception of a few who are holdovers from the previous movie. Judd
2: Hirsch. Gotta love Judd Hirsch. Saving a school bus full of children. <laughs> Judd oh Hirsch God.
3: is Jeff Goldblum's dad. It has like an incredibly hokey part. But the new characters they introduce, I mean, there's Liam Hemsworth, who I like always think is one of the Chris's, you know, d- is dating an, uh, an astronaut slash speechwriter <laughs> who's played by like kind of a stringy Brie Larson type. I guess Micah Monroe from It Follows, um, who actually is quite good. But she, I, at first, she just looked like an elongated I I don't know she's Larson supposed to me. be an
2: astronaut. I think she's a fighter pilot turned turn mm-hmm. speechwriter. <laughs> but the, but the, but but now that fighter pilots can go to space, is
3: there? Aren't That's they all the true. same thing? That's true. That's true.
2: There's some moments where they sort of imply that if you just put your plane in warp speed or something, it can it can bring drive the Dana the fusion drive. <laughs> I think you can just take
3: any kinds of airborne transport to the moon now. So I don't know. Anyway, she's got some kind of airborne capacity. She's also the daughter of of previous president Bill Pullman, who has kind of a like lurching. Uh, role. Everybody seems to get like a really bad migraine when the aliens activate. Like everyone who is in the first movie, like clutches their head and goes, "Oh
2: god." It's like Harry Potter and Voldemort. Yeah, because there was some sort of mind meld that happened in the first movie. And they're like writing runic symbols all over the walls with markers. Oh, yes. And we have to love Charlotte Gainsbourg playing the slinky French bohemian scientist who studies the runic symbol. And he's constantly running around with an iPad with the runic symbol on it, holding it up to various aliens saying, what does this mean? (laughs) She was the best.
3: I just want to be in Charlotte Gainsbourg's like class at her symbology school whatever. She was sort of out of the... um, She
0: studied with Langford at at Harvard.
3: Yeah, yeah, she's she's definitely... (laughs) Or Langdon,
0: whatever the fuck his name is. The
3: Dan Brown, out of the Dan Brown movies. I would say my my primary response to this movie... So first of all, it seems very retro. It also tanked. I mean, it did pretty badly at the box office. It was beat by the second week of Finding Dory.
2: I, I love that Dory beat it, I have to say. Even though I enjoyed this movie, of course I don't want this kind of movie to rule the box office. Well, the thing that struck me, and
3: I'm curious if it struck you guys, is that... This is the first movie I've seen in the era where you hear kind of in the No Hollywood types talk about how movies are now being made for the Chinese and the Chinese market is so important and they make so much box office f- from China and you don't have Chinese villains maybe the way you did in the 90s or 80s. This is the first movie where the the Chinese character seemed aimed at a totally different audience, like where I Mm -hmm. felt like no longer part of the cultural hegemon audience. Like you could just, you know, if you think about it, like The Martian, other movies, there's plenty of, when the globe is banding together to battle an intergalactic threat, there's many opportunities to include characters from all countries. So if you think about The Martian, there's this crucial role for the Chinese Astronaut core to play in the Martian and its retrieval of Matt Damon from Mars attempted retrieval anyway um, <laughs> spoiler. sorry, spoiler um, and I maybe that was in the original book, maybe not, but that was a movie of relative sophistication where that seemed like a totally plausible thing. For given the implausible scientific plot of that movie, it was very plausible. Like, oh, let's reach out to this other space corps. Like, I didn't have the thought watching that movie. Wow, what a sop to the Chinese movie going public. But in this movie, when they array the, like, intergalactic band of cardboard cutouts, like the young generation of um, orbital fighter pilots who are going to, you know, shoot down this invading disk, one of them is this Chinese fighter pilot on whom another character has a crush and she like shows up and speaks in Chinese to her uncle and ha- they have this exchange of jokes in Chinese that are subtitled that just do not feel pitched at an American audience at all. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was the most fascinating thing about this whole movie. It was like, wow, yeah. this is just, I mean, the, I think China became the second biggest movie going market like three years ago and I think it's going to be the biggest movie going market yeah. in the world either next year and a couple years following. And... Just because a more elegant movie like *The Martian* does it elegantly, like a clunky movie like this does it clunkily. But it just—I—I I was struggling with how to feel about it as a as a watcher of the movie. I was thinking like, "Whoa, this is just like the movie just switched over into mm-hmm. like another." Yeah vector and is talking to a different set of people than the people sitting here on 34th Street in New York City. And then right. I was like, how should I feel about that? Maybe I should feel great about that. Like, the, you know, if, if if I'm rooting against American cultural hegemony and dominance, it's sort of interesting to not be the like prime target for these entertainments. On the other hand, it was executed so poorly. It's really hard yeah, to feel closely. great about it.
0: Well, I mean, the, the, well, a couple of things. One is that I think the 20 years since Independence Day is the 20 years when this phenomenon has happened. And Independence Day sort of marked its be- The first one marked its beginning. It, that was exactly the moment, the mid-90s, when foreign box office equaled for the first time domestic. And they ran neck and neck through the late 90s. And then as I understand it, it was about 10 years ago that, uh, that a foreign box office began to overtake. Domestic, and you really ch- it changed the game of writing movies. They now had to be written in a much more blockbuster movies. They had to be written in much more generic, you know, kind of from nowhere to nowhere style. And um, I would feel great about seeding our global hegemony, at least in cultural hegemony, at least in some ways, um, but not to nowhere, you know, or not to some bizarre, you know, United Color of Benetton's pastiche designed to please as many possible audience you know, as many audiences the world can uh, generate. And you definitely felt that in this movie, that this movie really kind of comes from nowhere, is directed at nowhere. It's, it's attempting for a universality that makes it flavorless. It doesn't really honor the Chineseness of the Chinese in any way. It doesn't seem to come from America in any specific way. Dana, that just strikes me as depressing, right? Is that the future of super large movies?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think whatever you say about this movie, I don't think that it is a particularly typical movie of its kind. I think that yeah. if we wait just a few more weeks into the summer, we can find a movie about which we can make these same critiques maybe more, even more compellingly. I think it is true that the Chinese characters and t- the tiny bit of like of, of interplay between them in Chinese felt sort of product placement-ish. You know, it wasn't so much let's welcome this different culture into our world as maybe Pacific Rim tried to do, right? Pacific Rim, the Guillermo del Toro I don't know what you'd call it, like it's a space galactic opera, seemed like it was actually attempting to imagine some sort of multinational future, whereas here that did feel like a a sort of product placement sop. But I still think that this movie runs along a slightly separate track, maybe because Emmerich is European, you know, maybe because he isn't he isn't aiming quite at the American audience that there's a kind of yeah, it is kind of a bland internationalism to his to his focus. But I think the glory that he takes in this imagined uh, destruction is doesn't feel like a violent one to me. And maybe just because this movie is set in a kind of absurd futuristic utopia where, you know, everything is is easily fixable if you can just blast away those damn aliens, which is very, very easy to see why Hollywood and the whole world would want to imagine such simplicity, right? At a moment when being a refugee, speaking a foreign language, you know, having a common goal with another national group seems more and more difficult after each Mm -hmm. election.
0: That's true. All right, well... Right-thinking people everywhere saw this movie as preposterous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an act of Esperanto filmmaking, but Dana Stevens loved it. So come to Facebook.com slash culturefest and t- t- take up the uh, argument with her. At the movies, Independence Day, what is it, Resurgence? The Resurgence.
3: Resurgence. Independence Day colon Resurgence,
2: which is great
0: cause it sounds
3: so
2: like icky and gooey. You're like, oh, the movie <laughs> just resurged back at me. <laughs> just to quote one more line from it. Listen up, they're going for our molten core. (laughs) How can you not like a movie that has that line?
0: Oh, I don't know how. Yeah, impossible. All right. All right, we're joined by Dan Kois, the uh, culture editor, of course, of Slate Magazine. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Dan, you and Isaac Butler have compiled an oral history on the occasion of the 25th anniversary of the play Angels in America by Tony Kushner. Your co-written introduction is so beautiful that it would be a travesty for me not to just quote it. So here we go. 25 years ago this summer, Tony Kushner's Angels in America premiered in the tiny Eureka Theater in San Francisco's Mission District. Within two years, it had won the Pulitzer Prize and began a New York run that would dominate the Tony Awards two years in a row revitalize the non-musical play on Broadway and change the way gay lives were represented in pop culture. Both parts of Angel's Millennium Approaches and Perestroika put gay men at the center of American politics. Uh, Dan, I think the important fact there just to lead off with is it's now a part of the American literary and theatrical canon. It's a great play whether you look at it politically or otherwise, but there's no way to look at it non-politically, especially when the play came out. It completely changed, if I'm right, the dialogue this country was having about AIDS and the way it was spoken of and the way the gay community, as you say, was depicted in pop culture. Talk a little bit about the play and your relationship to the
1: play. The play revolutionized the way that American pop culture dealt with AIDS and gay men. It also, in a lot of ways, and I want to talk to you in particular about this, Steve, it really changed the way that a particular generation thought about Reagan and the Reagan era. Opened in San Francisco in 1991. It opened on Broadway in 1993. And in fact, it opened just a few months after the Clinton inauguration. And many people that we talked to over the course of this oral history talked a lot about the way that the entire political dynamism of the play seemed to them to be of a piece with a kind of revolution that they believed was happening in the country at the time. And the way that the play urged them to reconsider the Reagan Bush era, not only for Reagan's silence on AIDS uh, as thousands were dying, um, but for the way it corrupted the country and the country's morality and ethics as a whole, felt invigorating and amazing to them. My personal connection to the play is not that different from many others. I when it when it was a thing uh, in in the early nineties, I like many young aspiring theater people, got really excited about it, and I read it in American theater magazine because they printed the entire script of millennium approaches in American theater magazine. Um, and I, uh, came to New York in the summer of 1994 when it was running on Broadway, both parts are running on Broadway. Um, I saved up all my money to And I think pegged some money off my parents to afford tickets, which were historically expensive at that time. It was, I think, the first Broadway show to maybe, like, break the $70 barrier or something. Um, and I saw Millennium Approaches in Perestroika that summer, and uh, they – you know, I already knew the show as well. But just seeing that those performances changed the way I thought about what art could do emotionally and politically and the way it could reframe my thinking about the world and um and it still i think has that effect for many people and 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 that's that's a big part of its place in the canon for an entire generation of art lovers it was a seminal artistic experience all right
0: dan well there's so many things i want to talk to you about this play but before we get there hbo did a beautiful production of this directed by mike nichols came out about 10 years ago or so when was that it came out in 2003 2003. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway,
1: why don't we listen to a clip from that? Sure. This is uh, from early in the in the movie, Mike Nichols' movie, then also early in the play. The movie tracks the play basically one-to-one. Um, and it's a scene between Lewis, who is a clerk in the um, courthouse, the New York City courthouse, uh, and his lover, Pryor, um, who is a sort of waspy cater waiter. Um, they're both young gay men in their early 20s. Mid 20s. Um, it's set in 1987 uh, in New York, and it's a scene in which uh, Pryor is revealing to Lewis that he has confirmed that he has AIDS. See?
0: That's just a burst blood vessel. Not according to the best medical authorities. What? Tell me. Chaos, baby. Lesion number one
1: wine-dark kiss of the angel of death. Oh, please. I'm a legionnaire. A foreign legion. The American
0: legion. Legionnaire's disease. Stop. My troubles are legion- Will you stop? Don't you think I'm handling this well? I'm gonna die. Bullshit. Let go of my arm. No. Let go.
1: No. <laughs>
0: Find a way to spare you, baby um, Dan, when something becomes a masterpiece and part of the canon, it always feels in retrospect like it was inevitable. Um, one of the great virtues of this oral history that you 've done with Isaac Butler is that of course, nothing is inevitable. Everything starts as a fragile seedling and may or may not become um, great and and inevitable seeming. In reconstructing the history of the genesis of the play in Tony Kushner's imagination and its first productions in a tiny theater in San Francisco, what surprised you most about its evolution?
1: Uh, basically, I mean, very much what you said that that there were many points at which this whole thing could have gone off the rails. You know, Tony Kushner pitched this play originally; it was commissioned by the Eureka Theater as a ninety-minute chamber play about uh, gay men. AIDS, Mormons, and Roy Cohn with five characters and songs. That was, that was the original commission. Um, and it turned into a seven hour, two part, like epic masterpiece with enormous technical challenges and angels flying around on ropes and multiple scene changes and scenes set in Antarctica. And, uh, and the road from his, from his original vision of the play to what it became was really rocky. And there were people defecting from theaters and fighting over the play and legal challenges. And uh, and time after time after time, Kushner found himself somewhat overwhelmed by the task that he had set himself or that he felt that art had set him or fate had set him. And the stories we heard of productions of angels going into rehearsal without – even having a script. I mean, time after time, part two, Perestroika would go into rehearsal at multiple theaters in San Francisco and Los Angeles and London and the script wasn't ready. It wasn't done. Even on Broadway, he spent, Tony Kushner, after winning every Tony in the spring of 1993, spent the entire summer basically having a nervous breakdown, gaining 40 pounds and throwing out his back while trying to finish the script of Perestroika for its anticipated fall 1993 opening. And he basically drove himself crazy trying to make A a conclusion to this thing he had set himself and watching all the artists that were along with him on the way trying to help him while also trying to pull what they needed out of the process out of him was totally fascinating. And 25, 24, 23 years after that, people's memories were still very sharp and their feelings were very strong about how difficult and nearly catastrophic this process was for everyone.
2: To the degree, Dan, that certain people involved with the project still say to this day that while Millennium, the first half, so the first of the two halves of the play, is this perfect gem-like play, that many of them still think Perestroika is kind of too long and too crazy and unstageable, even though they also seem to say it needs to be there in all of its uh, overlong craziness.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. And it gave doing this project gave me a real, a new appreciation for Perestroika, which I, like many people, also have felt is like, eh. I'm glad that it exists and it's still better than most plays but it's clearly inferior to part 1. But the way that the people, you know, people like George Wolf who directed the play on Broadway, the way they talk about Perestroika as this sort of great messy work of American genius that more accurately reflects what they love about art and theater in all its Glorious insanity gave me a new appreciation for what that experience must have been like and what that play does bring to the sort of overall thematic and aesthetic arcs of angels as a as a whole piece right Part one is a, a well made machine as Kushner says in the oral history it's like the one thing he's made that is completely unfuck upable you can't do it wrong it just is like an entertainment machine and But part two is more true in many ways to the themes of the piece, that humanity, in order to survive and thrive, needs to always be moving forward in all its messiness and glory. And that's what Perestroika in the end did. And uh, and Tony Kushner, his genius in a way in making part two was in making it about the struggle that he himself was facing. He was struggling to move forward and struggling to progress. And he made the play about that struggle itself, about the struggle to change and evolve even when the things that worked before feel good and feel right humanity must move forward nonetheless even when it's painful
2: right and the drama of that of that writing and of that deadline meeting is a big part of the oral history that, that you guys gathered I, it was there's something heartening for anyone who's experienced writer's block to imagine the position of tony kushner as he's trying to deliver that last play and he keeps proliferating and getting hundreds of pages longer and he's he's locked up in a spider-infested cabin madly trying to finish it it's, it's a drama in itself
1: yeah and like the and to know that like even after the guy had won the Pulitzer Prize in every Tony, he still, you still, he still had to do the work. He still had to like write the fucking pages. Uh, it is a good reminder that everyone just still has to write the fucking pages.
2: Thanks a lot, editor.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I love about this project, Dan. I mean, I like you. Was I, I saw a production of this at the Trinity Rep in Providence in the in '96, and felt like whoa, I didn't know, you know, I'd gone to plays as a kid, I'd seen a bunch of like Shakespeare reinterpreted in like punk London and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but to see a new play that felt so vital and electric was stunning and transformative experience for me. And I think a couple of people in the oral history compared Angels in America to Hamilton as sort of a, a play that was a bona fide blockbuster hit and phenomenon uh, won all the accolades of the theater industry, but also became like a talking point for think pieces. Or I forget who it is who says it was a sort of thing that was discussed in the New York Review of Books as well as in theater reviews. Um, and I wondered what you what you learned from this project about what theater offers, particularly when when someone's able to produce a work that that goes this big and has this much of an impact. I mean, it's it's rare and probably increasingly rare right? Um, but, But I wondered what you came away with thinking about this as a work of theater specifically
1: The most interesting direct parallel that I discovered between these two between Hamilton and Angels in putting this together was something that I hadn't really thought about before which is that a great amount of the power for each of these works in their time is that they viewed the great arc of American history through the lens of a group of people who had previously been completely left out of that history and and told that story in some way through their stories. Angels did it by putting gay men at the center of the sort of American political process and the American cultural argument. Hamilton does it slightly differently. It does it through casting, right? It casts people of color in the roles of these founding fathers and through casting and also the vernacular of the music that it uses, it encourages us to view this era in a new light by putting these previously marginalized voices on the stage in an interesting way. But both of those, both of these works separated by about 25 years became phenomenons in part because they allowed a brand new audience uh, who had previously felt like their stories were not being told or that they were not being represented in this high art arena to understand that they could be part of that world and that not only could they be part of that world, but their addition to that world made for a better work, made for a kind of masterpiece that was not previously accomplishable. Um, And so watching people respond to Hamilton, knowing the way that 25 years ago, Angels just created a whole new way of storytelling, of epic storytelling, and of and of viewing um, art through this completely different lens is really heartening. Now that the differences between them are obviously many, but the one huge difference is that Hamilton is a gigantic moneymaker. Angels was a huge hit; it was a tough ticket to get. Uh, it it won every award. And it made some money at first, but in the end, it just barely maybe broke even or maybe lost its investors a tiny amount. In part, that was because of the tremendously expensive struggles of putting Perestroika on stage. They lost hundreds of thousands of dollars just shutting down shows to try and get Perestroika right. And they never really quite recovered from that. But also, it was a different era, and Angels was fighting against a Broadway that was very resistant to new American plays. It was the era when the only thing that could succeed on Broadway was like a big British mega musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, And it paved the way for Broadway to be a place where popular high art like Hamilton could not only be embraced but also be financially successful. Like I think that the struggles of Angels meant that a quality show like Hamilton 25 years ago could not only be beloved, but could make, it, make an enormous amount of money in the way that it is now. Well, Dan, this is an incredible uh,
0: achievement and contribution to the um, collective memory of this play. It's uh, great to have you on to talk about it. Thanks, guys. Uh, You can find Dan Coyce's and Isaac Butler's uh, wonderful oral retelling of the history of the play Angels in America at Slate.com. Check it out. And please tell us what you thought of it at uh, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. From Caitlyn Jenner to Jaden Smith to half the students in your average Upper West Side middle school, gender is coming apart at the seams. It's happening in my family, too. How traceable is this phenomenon to a single American philosopher named Judith Butler? It was in 1989 that Judith Butler and her now, I think it has to be said classic book, Gender Trouble, argued that nothing in human language or theory carves nature at the joints, so to speak, especially gender, that gender, in fact, is more of a performance than a fact of biology, and that gender norms, therefore, can be subverted and parodied. On an ongoing basis. Um, Dana, the place to start here is with you. Uh, how surprised are you to see this person who, I, I and it should be said that within academia, many people revere Judith Butler as a god and as a philo- philosophical god. She's goddess, I'm sorry, or neither. Um, gender-neutral deity. She's um, as deeply versed in the European tradition of philosophy as anybody teaching in the American Academy. She makes routine reference not only to contemporary French theory, but the tradition of german philosophy going back to hegel and Kant and beyond um she's absolutely brilliant woman how but how surprised are you that this person who was also the subject of an enormous amount of criticism involving her supposedly painfully obscure writing style and her you know kind of outre theories is now becoming something of a one dare one say it a media star
2: Yeah, I mean, in my world, in my little limited world, she's been a media star for 25 years. So the (laughs) fact that she's now in New York Magazine being profiled is just kind of a funny cherry on top. But I was delighted to hear that she was getting profiled in a big popular mainstream magazine because I feel like... You know, from the early 90s on, from the days when I first sort of knew of and started reading with her on, she has, as you say, been this this figure who's held up as a a model of obscurity, obscurantism. She won the, quote, bad writing award some year back then, which was, you know, who knows who even gives out the bad writing award. It's sort of the anti-theory award is what it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, as I think we've talked about this before in, in relation to, you know, talking about maybe it was the Caitlyn Jenner episode. And yet her theories have trickled so far down. Down, that now, mm-hmm. as as Molly Fisher, the author of this New York Magazine profile, points out, I think it was an L magazine or some teen magazine, the word heteronormativity is casually used in teen, describing... Teen Vogue. A teen Vogue, in describing Jaden Smith's wearing of, of skirts, right? A, a young man wearing a skirt in a fashion spread. There's just, you know, and, and, and obviously our our ideas about intersectionality and being a trans person have changed wildly since that time. A huge part of that is because of, you know, pressures in the culture and many things that have nothing to do with Judith Butler. It obviously doesn't flow from her. But in terms of there being a language to describe these things and Mm -hmm. and a a kind of unsettling of the the binary language that came before, yeah, I think she is a huge, huge part of it.
0: That's a beautiful point. I mean, because it does seem to me that some of this is causation, but some of it's just purely correlation. But, But she had this prophetic way of thinking about gender so far ahead of everyone else's curve. And now the world has caught up to her in a way. And so there's this existing vocabulary to describe a social transformation that is just inexorably happening all around us. All right. So slowing down a little bit, let's, let's just give r- r- listeners who may be not uh, overly familiar with her work or familiar at all with her work already some sense of what she was arguing. Dana, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I associate her... With this moment in the 80s when theory became quite prominent in English and comp departments, especially French theory, and especially for Butler, um, uh, the French theorist Michel Foucault, who um, takes what are normally thought to be natural or biological uh, phenomena and redescribes them as having uh, a history and therefore as being radically contingent and socially constructed. Foucault uh, did think quite a lot about um, gender and sexuality. I mean, he wrote a history of sexuality, but it was really American academics like Judith Butler and Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick, who took up this idea that what we think of as somehow rooted in nature or human nature is itself radically contingent, dependent upon language and human subjectivity and social performance. And that began the process of finding a whole new vocabulary with which to talk about uh, not being straight, uh, not being uh, heteronormative, and on and on and on. Is that Am I in the ballpark here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that would that would speak well to sort of Judith Butler's initial contribution, you know, the thing that kind of made her name, that Gender Trouble book and the the rip that she kind of made in in gender studies in the academy. By making this very basic to us now claim that gender is performative, that it's something that you are born with, you know, maybe a physical sex, but that what that means for you as a social being is constructed throughout the course of your life. I mean, at this point, having seen, you know, RuPaul and, and Laverne Cox on TV and Caitlyn Jenner out, in the real world, the idea that gender is performative hardly seems shocking to us. But I think that's because there are pioneers who say things that sound strange to everyone. And I remember being at, you know, debates and public speeches and things where, you know, trolls in a way, people that were really offended by the strangeness of this language and this idea would raise their hand afterwards and ask, are you saying that there's no such thing as men and women? Are you saying, you know, that these ideas, even to very educated people at that time, sounded strange and, and displacing.
3: Well, I remember showing up at college in 1996 and signing up for like a women's studies class as a young feminist. And on the first day, the like shop, you know, the day when people were going around and shopping classes the professor stood up and said, "What is gender?" And there was like an array of hands in the front rows, and someone stood up and said, "A social construct." And the professor said, "What does it define?" And the person who stood up said, "Dominance and subordination." And I
2: just like slunk out of the back of the class and was like, "Not for me, <laughs> not interested." That reminds- isn't there some Monty Python skit where some leader, some inspirational speaker is making them all say, "We will not be conformists. We will not be conformists." <laughs> it was
3: there was like, a, yes, the content of of that call-in response was not what was off-putting. It was the, uh, the like, zealotry that seemed to animate it that um, made me take my hidebound self to the well, more conservative history department. But,
2: see, that's, that, that makes me want to jump in and say something just about Judith Butler as a teacher, which is, I think, is something that didn't quite come across in this article as much as I would have liked. I think it's a great I mean, resume of her thought and kind of where she's at now in her thought, which is very different. She's not really writing on gender at all anymore. She's writing on politics and refugees and Israel and all kinds of other things. Um, um, but she was not a zealot as a teacher at all, or an advisor, and in fact had this kind of gnomic quality. I think this made it into the article. A bunch of, I think a bunch of her former students compared her to celebrities of various kinds. Not so much because you know she was she's the celebrity who walks around being uh, uh, unavailable. In fact, she was somebody who you could you know pretty easily get an appointment with and go to her office hours and talk to her about your work. But in that her teaching had this kind of gnomic quality. I think I compared her to Bob Dylan, you know, in the way in interviews he'll he'll not answer the question that was asked, but the answer that he gives opens up some other possibility. That was, in a way, her style of teaching, or at least to me, it was sort of her style of, of being a thesis advisor. And so it really was the opposite of, you know, somebody coming in with these ham-handed views and, and wedging them into your work. It was much more of, a, of an opening, and I think she is a born teacher in the sense of Socrates. Like, I feel like Judith Butler is one of these people, if she, if she lived 2,000 years ago, she would be under a tree to talking about ideas and people would be gathering around to listen.
3: Unless her given sex had ruled out that opportunity for her.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe she would have found a way to, to subvert it way back then and human history would have been different. Could be. I mean, I do. It, it
3: is fascinating to reencounter these ideas. It is stunning how quickly the broader culture seems to be speaking in this lingo and taking these somewhat radical in the millennia of human history ideas about how gender functions as givens, as new givens. And also there's the obvious attendant political backlash With the that seems currently to be centered on the trans bathroom fights, but um, obviously has other w- tentacles as well. But I have had a whole new set of thoughts around this from raising two young boys, and you guys have girl children. I mean, it's the constant conundrum of parenthood of like how much is in the kid already, and how much is this endless feedback loop where all of your behaviors shape all of their future selves and actions in a way that's so cripplingly, mind bogglingly consequential that you can't think about it, else you would just like stand there with a mac and cheese box in your hand and never pour it into a pot of boiling water. <laughs> um, but like my children are obsessed with trucks, they're young boys obsessed with trucks, they are so consumed with modes of transport, and I as a deep non-gender essentialist, as someone who like rankles when I get asked about what it's like to be a woman leader, it's like, I, I, I don't know, man, <laughs> just me. Um, it's weird. It's like trippy. It's it, Parenthood has complicated my ideas about gender, which I do think is largely socially constructed, despite how off-putting I found that um, slightly fascistic <laughs> recitation, and um, And I can't tell, you know, of course, like when my children started noticing cement mixers, then I started pointing them out, right? So if, you know, like would I have not pointed out and reinforced the cement mixer interest with a girl child and would I have pointed Mm -hmm. out and reinforced her like sparkle interest instead? I don't know, but it. There's a there there that's that's confounding when you have the set of political beliefs I do.
0: Yeah. I, Julia, that's so fascinating. I totally agree. But what calls up a, a couple of interesting related questions. First of all, we should point out that today's the 46th anniversary of Stonewall, right? So there can just be, you know, that was just a moment where, based on no theory of anything whatsoever, a bunch of people not wearing the right clothes and not having sex with the right people just said no to a bunch of cops, right? And the modern gay rights movement was born even though no one would have woken up the next morning and, and said so. And it's interesting to think about what the relationship between political acts and events that are relatively spontaneous and just happen because someone says, no. Like, no. This is where the line gets drawn. It gets drawn tonight. Fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. And, you know, very deep theoretical reconsiderations of notions of justice and, um, and uh, social norms, um, and both play a real role. What I find interesting about the latter, especially relative to your boys and trucks, is that do we need to go so far as to say, to become a kind of um, um, doctrinaire anti-essentialist in order to have social progress, right? Like theory demands a d- degree of coherence and conclusiveness uh, about gender that i don't think is sustainable on the other uh, uh, to the other extent either i mean there you know there may be we, we don't we're never going to crack the code of where biology ends and society begins uh, or culture begins um so i think in a way uh, to try to bring these two two points together into a single point i mean you sort of have to honor the non-theoretical as it unfolds in the middle of the night in a gay bar you know, in uh, Greenwich Village, and with your kids. Like, I mean, you know, they're going to do things that seem radically conformist, and that has to be okay too. And maybe you don't need any kind of theory as to what's performance or what's gender. Um, you just have to be uh, open-minded. What am I? What am I trying to say, Dana?
2: I don't know. I mean, I guess it seems, in a way, to me like the child is doing the work him or herself, right? I mean, the child him or herself is saying, okay, I'm a body, I'm thrown into this world, there seem to be these two gendered kinds of bodies, they seem to have different, you know, colors and toys and shapes and activities that are associated with them. How do I place myself in the middle of all this? Mm -hmm. And uh, the best the parent can do is to to maintain somewhere within themselves that point of of unknowing, right? And not yourself to create those rigid categories and make the child Mm -hmm. feel like, oh, it's also at home that all of these, you know, rules apply, and I must place myself. There has to be some place in other words where you can ask the question like am i a boy am i a girl what does it mean to be one of those things just because i'm a girl does that mean i have to grow up to be a woman you know those are questions that mm-hmm. that kids yeah. can ask now right yeah, and i absolutely. do you
3: know it, it it does i'm glad we live in a time where you think about those things and you don't just say like oh you know he's going to be such a heartbreaker or i've noticed my propensity for like bright and bold patterns on my clothes or patterns with like vivid prints that are befitting a children's book, like, delights my, they like to comment on my outfits. And it's like, all right, young men, comment on my outfits. (laughs) Go forth and have opinions about my fashion. (laughs) Also, I guess I dress like a kid's book.
0: (laughs) I mean,
2: I would commend this Judith Butler piece, even to people who don't know who she is or not particularly interested or sort of think, you know, she's that boring, smart lady from the early 90s. I mean, to see her as an actual thinking figure who's continuing to move forward and think new things and write new things, to me, it was it was an exciting piece.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, the New York Magazine piece is called Think Gender is Performance. You have Judith Butler to thank for that. Go check it out. Um, she She really is a consequential American intellectual, however you feel about her. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought of it. All right. Now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana. Besides Resurgent, what do you have? <laughs>
2: The culminating cultural experience of my week, Independence Day Resurgence. You know, I actually brought in a fairly recent Judith Butler book to endorse because I wanted to make it clear to people that they don't have to go back to the early 90s and read Gender Trouble or one of her books that was deemed so dense and unreadable at the time. She actually has, I think, in addition to moving on to different kinds of topics, moved toward making her writing more accessible to non-academic audiences. And she has this slender little book called Precarious Life. She has
3: great book titles. Gender
2: Trouble is like – I mean,
3: whatever you can say about her language and the the representative paragraph that won the Bad Writing Award is truly execrable in my view, (laughs) the one that appears in the New York piece. But Gender Trouble is like a great provocative – needling title.
2: It uh, is. It's, it's, a, it's a pop title. You know, it's a kind of a crossover. You can see why that book crossed over somewhat from the academy to to outside. Um, so this, this book is from 2004. I guess it's not that recent, but it's from, you know, 20 years after the gender trouble period. It's a slim little book, less than 150 pages long. And it's about, you know, many of the things that she's thinking about now, which include the Palestinian state. There's a chapter about um, refugees and the sort of statelessness, the status of the stateless refugee. You know, there's also plenty in here about, you know, bodily integrity and sort of what it is to constitute oneself as a subject and things that might be thought of as kind of theoretical ideas. But she relates all of them to very current and very pressing and very painful problems in global politics. So I think it's something that whether or not you're interested in the gender angle or the theory angle is just something that would be a thoughtful first Judith Butler work to start with, precarious life.
0: Mm, Cool. All right. um, Julia, what do you got?
2: Well, I'm just
3: back from a week's vacation in the countryside and spent some time driving around like farmland with the windows down listening to old music. And I did the thing that I sometimes do of just playing the playlist I have in my iTunes of every song I've ever listened to more than 10 times on Shuffle. Uh, which is like a great way to, to skin your iTunes and just like separate out the wheat from the chaff. Uh, but it led to the rediscovery of a bunch of old songs that I've loved at various points. And the song I would like to recommend today is a Lucinda Williams track called Those Three Days, which is just the most like plaintive, mournful uh, remembrance of a feudal one-night stand or I guess maybe three-night stand ever. It's just a good countryside, windows down, mournful song. Speaking of which, we've got to get our strut on. We've got to assemble our strut list. Let's make speaking this Speaking of
0: mournful? Yeah.
3: Well, speaking of things to listen to in the summertime. Let's make this the final week for submissions. Uh, we'll recirculate the posts on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, where you can submit your 2016 summer strut wrecks, And then we'll assemble a Spotify playlist and get to yakin sometime soon.
0: Glorious. Let's do. Okay, so I, this week I'm going to um, endorse the thing. I thought the best thing that I read on Brexit. I mean, I read a, The Guardian just can't, you know, fall out of bed without producing 20 more, you know, penetratingly smart takes on contemporary British life and politics, especially as it results to Brexit. But I thought the best thing was a blog post that I only just discovered that um, New York Magazine has reprinted at least on the web, Um, it was called The A to Z of Brexit, A Guide to Britain's New Politics, written by Tom Ewing. And um, as soon as I tweeted about it, it's really brilliant. I mean, it's really quite well done and very incisive and unexpected in places. But um, Jody Rosen immediately tweeted back and said, oh, do you know know Tom Ewing's work? I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't. It turns out he's just a tremendously gifted writer, uh, sort of pop culture and pop music writer, Buzzing around, I guess you know the typical places. You know, Guardian, I think, especially for which he had a column. But um, uh, he's a really, really, really sharp thinker and writer. And so, if you have any lingering doubts about what you think about Brexit, um, I can't recommend this highly enough: the A to Z of Brexit, a guide to Britain's new politics. And then just avail yourself of Tom Ewing's um, prose. It's really pretty. Enviable.
2: Sounds great. Can I just throw in, as long as we're talking about good British writing on Brexit in the Guardian, that, that Philip Pullman, the author of the what are they called, the Subtle Knife, what's the, the first Amber of those Spyglass, novels? the Golden the Compass. Golden Compass. Yes. If Dan Coys was here, he would be reciting his Dark them all Materials. In order. Yes. His Dark Materials. That's what the whole trilogy is called, which I haven't read, but I know what a great trilogy it is. Anyway, I'd never read him on anything, and he wrote this beautiful kind of historical study going back to mm. I don't know the. Fifteen, sixteen hundred, sort of looking at isolationism in Britain and the history of their relationship with Europe. And I just learned so much from it. And he was such a compelling writer about politics that it made me want to go pick up that trilogy right away.
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, all right. Well, um, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culture fest. And you can email us at culturefest.com at slate.com or drop us a note at our facebook page facebook.com slash culturefest. our producer is ann hepperman our intern is lizzie Fison. the executive producer of slate podcast is steve lichtai and andy bowers is the chief content officer of the panoply networks culture gap fest is of course part of the panoply network you can check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply our twitter feed is at slate cult for julia turner and Stevens. steven time steven thank you so much for joining us and we'll we'll see you soon
2: There's always gonna be this thing Between us days are filled with dreams Scorpions
0: crawl across my screen Make their home beneath my skin